Lois Lupica, and I'm resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I'm joined today with the authors of a new book published by the American Bankruptcy Institute, Survival Guide for the New Lawyer, What They Didn't Teach You in Law School. I'm joined today by the book's authors, Kevin Baum, an attorney with Baum and & Bailey, and Craig Lutterbein of Hodgson Russ. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having us. So in the first chapter, you note the importance of a new lawyer introducing him or herself to the other members of the firm with an elevator speech. Can you give our listeners your elevator speech about yourselves, which saves me from introducing you? Hi, I'm Craig Lutterbein. I uh, work in the bankruptcy and commercial litigation practice at Hudson Russ. I, I focus my, my practice on uh, restructuring uh, debtors in financial trouble as well as representing secured creditors in uh, either state court or bankruptcy proceedings, uh, focusing on forbearance-type work and uh, enforcement of loans. Great. Thank you. Kevin? Hi, I'm Kevin Baum. I work at Baum & Bailey. I represent debtors and creditors in bankruptcy cases, mostly consumer, some uh, commercial. I also represent parties in commercial litigation in state and federal court. In addition to my practice, I'm also an adjunct professor at St. John's where I teach a legal writing course that focuses on bankruptcy cases, and it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so my first question is, what motivated you to write this book? Was it, the, was it a case of, I wish I knew then what I know now? Um, I think it was a bunch of factors. One, yes, the I wish I knew then what I know now is a big aspect of it. A lot of the lessons provided in the book were learned the hard way, so I would always would help that a young attorney wouldn't necessarily have to stumble the same way that I have. Uh, and as we mentioned in the book, it's a good way to get involved with the ABI, further ourselves, help further our careers. So it was a combination of the two. Uh, this is this is Craig mm-hmm. chipping in real quick. I think one of the biggest lessons that any new attorney can learn is that it's important to jump on opportunities while you have them. And the way that this book came up for me is that Kevin had been in touch with the ABI and asked me, basically, you know, had the opportunity to write this book, much of which um, had already been written by uh, several authors before us who are giving credit in the book, and they had done a very good job, and we had to finish off about half of it and edit a lot of it. And given the opportunity to, to finish the book and, and get some credit, it's, it's been a great way for me to advance my name both from the ABI uh, but also within my firm. And I think that any opportunity one has to show some expertise and pass on whatever knowledge uh, they may have to come off as an expert, and in this case an expert on you know, working at a law firm for four years, is impressive both in and outside your firm. And, and, in, and frankly, uh, has reflected very well on me uh, in, in my firm. So it, it's, you know... To answer your question, it was an opportunity that was given to me, uh, and I took it, and I think that's one of the best things that any new associate can do at a law firm. So you say in your introduction, and you you just reiterated, that um, some of the lessons you're imparting were learned the hard way. Can you describe a blunder that you made as a new associate, um, uh, any kind of cautionary tale? Yes, I. this is actually kind of funny looking back on it, it definitely was not at the time. 
I was tasked with filing a notice of appearance, which is a simple piece of paper saying that we were showing up to the court and we'd like to receive papers. And I was filing on behalf of the partner in my office at my former firm and the partner in the Washington, D.C. office. And in preparing this, I had just gone onto the computer system and pulled an old version of this, which I would recommend that people do. It's not always a great idea to reinvent the wheel. But in using the old version, I didn't check the addresses and didn't realize that the firm had moved addresses in Washington, D.C. So I ended up filing a notice of appearance with the wrong address for my own law firm. It taught me very early on to proofread, to double-check things, to send it over to somebody else, um, such as a secretary or paralegal who would have knowledge of this, just to avoid those kind of silly mistakes. Because, as I remember, the partner was not happy with me, <laughs> and we had to refile a amended notice of appearance, which does not happen that often. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like uh, e- each one of us has a story, uh, some variation on that story uh, as as young associates. But I think everyone has a variation on that yes. story. And uh, the, mm-hmm. the mistake I made was uh, not treating the partners that I worked for like clients. And, you know, everything has to be final product. Everything has to be proofread. Partners that we work for are busy people, and, and they don't want to take the time to proofread our work for us, and neither would our clients. That's that's a great piece of advice. Um, would you would you say that the book is equally applicable to big firm lawyers as well as those working in smaller practices? Yes, we we try to um, have the focus on uh, both the big firm and the small firm. I've actually had the experiences of I've worked in an AML 100 firm before I joined Bauman Bailey, and Bauman Bailey is a small, very small firm. So we try to tailor our advice whenever possible to each to each um, style of practice and the different challenges and problems that you would face in, as an attorney at either a big or a small law firm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit now about the specific advice found in the book. Um, chapter two offers some advice about managing expectations and communication with supervising attorneys. Can you describe some of the most important pieces of advice you offer um, in connection with expectations and communication? Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a partner at any law firm, and especially uh, some of the bigger law firms, um, I, by reference to that last question, I work um, in a in a larger mid-sized firm. We're uh, an AmLaw 200 firm, but we're nowhere near the size of uh, the AmLaw 100 firms. But still, the partners that I work for are managing several cases, uh, and you know, frankly, I don't even know half the cases they're working on. So their their schedule is much tighter than ours is. Uh, or than yours will be as a new associate. And the communications that you make when you're going to finish something, whether or not you're going to meet their deadline, they, they rely on those. And they schedule, and you know, they're scheduling their time to review your product or to file your product. And they expect you to, you know, inform them of when they're going to be available. And if your work's not done, 
when you've told them it's going to be done and they've scheduled time for it to be done, you're going to face an uphill battle with that partner or you know senior colleague uh, trusting you for till until you disprove that uh, that bad taste that they've got in their mouth. So you know you you prove again that you're a trustworthy person who will uh, turn in uh, not only high quality product but timely product, mm-hmm. um, and that that's much harder do than disproving them by not, not getting them the work and when you told them you're going to get them the work. Right. Uh, and then again, it, it, again, going with time, you know, partners will always be receptive to questions. Most partners will be receptive to questions. There, there are anomalies out there who uh, you know, are, are too busy or just not all that willing to help out. But every partner being busy, you have to pick your opportunity to ask your questions. And you have to have your questions well thought out uh, before you do ask them so as not to, to waste their time and to make sure you get the information you need from one uh, question session rather than 14. Mm-hmm. So it, it really comes down to expecting your senior colleagues' time. And, uh, you know, if, if you expect your senior colleagues to respect you, you need to respect their practice and their time as well. Well, related to that, the chapter on internal interactions offers the advice of asking questions and seeking feedback, even in the form of periodic informal reviews. But some have said, however, that the days of associate mentoring are over, that partners no longer invest in associates, and the days of if you work hard and stay on track, you'll make partner are in the past. How do you respond to that? Well, I would start out responding to that, that I think that's an overstatement. While there are certain partners that I would agree are not focused on mentoring attorneys, others very much so are, and it's up to the attorney to identify who's somebody that can mentor them. In addition, I don't think that a par, uh, a young associate needs to necessarily needs to look to a partner for mentorship. They can also look to other senior associates for mentorship, um, because those people will know the uh, position that they're in uh, as a young associate, and it has a more of a us versus them kind of attitude. But again, I I don't think that. All partners are not interested in their associates developing and growing as attorneys because they're the future partners. Now, to your point of working hard, you'll make partner, I think that probably is no longer true. I think that in most, or at least in big firms, it's been my experience that the people that made partner, especially the people who made equity partner, with the people that could not only do good work, but bring in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer the question about mentorship, uh, like I said, uh, you know, we're an AmLaw 200 firm, and I, I strongly disagree uh, with the idea that mentorship is, you know, the eras of mentorship being over. Um, at least my experience here, mentors are available if you are doing the things you're supposed to do, like I said, respecting your colleagues' time, and um, the, the senior attorneys take huge interest in training new and senior associates alike. Uh, so I, I think that maybe if you're talking one of the large mega firms, 
where, you know, there's a perception that associates are treated, treated like cogs, um, you know, just are replaceable. Um, and I, I'm not sure that's completely true either. But, at, you know, at, at a larger firm, you know, we're 200 attorneys here, uh, there's definitely opportunities for mentorship and there's definitely investment in associates. Um, and if you do your job and turn in good quality work and take an interest in your work, and, you know, advocate a little bit for some mentorship, you're likely to get more than you can handle rather than less. Well, that's encouraging news for new lawyers. So um, in another chapter, you describe the central role administrative assistants and paralegals have in a firm. Have you seen incidents of new lawyers failing to recognize this? Uh, all the time. I think it's a hard as a new attorney to have somebody that's working with you, and I've always been told the people uh, below you on the totem pole don't work for you, they work with you, are often older, more experienced than the young attorney. The young attorney may feel like they're bothering the secretary or paralegal. They may feel that the other partners who share the paralegal and secretary are using them and that they can't actually go out and use them. But I think it's an important thing to get over and to get over very quickly because certain aspects of your job, you just shouldn't be charging or spending your time as an attorney doing. For example, typing. An attorney shouldn't be spending or charging 300 to $400 an hour for typing services when there is somebody else that can do that. And it's a very as I said, a difficult thing for a young attorney to learn how to do, but it's an important skill and it's important to learn how to delegate and what you can and cannot delegate to support staff. Mm -hmm. So moving on to client interactions, um, you identify trust as the single most important factor in an attorney-client relationship. Say more about the importance of trust. I'm going to relate this back to your, your partners as well. As I mentioned before, your partners are your, your, your the, the partners in the firm are your clients, um, as well as you know your senior associates, as well as your more senior uh, associates. But trust takes two roles, whether it's a client or whether it's a partner within your, you know, whether it's an outside client or whether it's a partner. One, they have to trust that you're going to do what you tell them you're going to do. Uh, you tell them you're going to make a motion uh, to protect their interests. You should make that motion. And you should make it timely and make sure that their rights are done, uh, their, their rights are protected. And, of course, the client needs to trust that you're going to do high-quality work for them. Mm-hmm. The next thing, the, the other aspect of trust is they need to trust that you're going to always look out for their best interest. Uh, and that means confidentiality as well as work product and you know, maintaining the professional relationship at all times, at all times. You know, disclosing confidential information or using your client to try and, you know, as a, as a jumping point to find a new client, uh, it, 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 it never works out. It may, maybe, maybe it's worked out well for some in the short term, but it never works out in the long term. Mm-hmm. And you can see it from, you know, partners here. The clients need to trust that when they give you something, you're going to take absolute care of it. You, you're, you're going to both in terms of product as well as when 
they tell you something, it stays within, at least within your law firm. And it's not going to go out and harm them later. Uh, and I think that any client whose trust you breach, it's very difficult to get back or to keep satisfied. And frankly, if you breach a client's trust as a young associate, don't expect to see work from that client, from really from that partner who manages the client relationship ever again, which you know will hinder your career greatly, especially if that's the partner that you've been assigned to work under. Mm-hmm. Okay, you also talk about the importance of pro bono service. So the, there's an unmet need, and, and some say a crisis-level need, for legal services among lower and low-income populations. How do you think young associates are best motivated to do pro bono work? I think that there's a, a few factors that motivate young associates to do pro bono work. One, it's the best opportunity to get real-world, in-court experience as a young attorney that you just aren't going to be trusted with matters um, for paying clients in your firm, but a partner who's probably still going to be supervising you as a, in your pro bono case will allow you to go out and do more work and help you develop your skills and your career, and that's a very beneficial thing. The other, another bonus is at many large and mid-sized law firms, uh, associates get billable hour credit for doing pro bono work. So as many people know, that associates have to bill a certain amount of hours per year, and these firms will allow them to bill up to a set limit of maybe 50 or 100 hours of pro bono work. So that helps you reach your billable hour requirements. And finally it really does feel good to represent somebody who otherwise couldn't necessarily afford an attorney, uh, wouldn't see justice. You may end up representing large, faceless corporations, and which at times doesn't have the warm and fuzzy feeling, but when you have an individual sitting across from you that's very thankful for having your services, it um, has a personal satisfaction that you just may not get a uh, in your other other parts of your practice. Mm-hmm. So the chapter you wrote on professionalism seems so self-evident, and yet I've seen, we've all seen incidents where young lawyers acted as if they didn't have a clue. And ABI even fielded a task force to address these very issues. Do you see a lack of professionalism in the bankruptcy bar as a big problem? I don't see it as a pervasive problem. I think there are examples. I mean, for example, uh, a few years ago it came out that attorneys at a large law firm had been sending around emails that said churn baby churn when referring to their bills, which is obviously a gross deviation from the standard of professionalism. But I think generally... People are professional, are courteous, largely because the bankruptcy bar is so small that you're going to be dealing with the same people over and over again. That being said, I still think, especially the young attorney's age, that people need to learn what it is to become a professional, 
how to conduct themselves as a professional, and some of the obvious things tend to elude people at times, and especially young associates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a, an obvious thing that you need to be professional. For young associates, I, I, it, it, there's got to be some learning of, you know, what, what it truly means to be professional, and I think that that falls on the older members of the bar to teach. And I, I don't think that there's a pervasive problem as much as there is highlights of bad acts by those that, uh, you know, are either just bad apples or are learning. So what Kevin said, I, I practice uh, in Buffalo, New York, and as, as well as in New York City. Uh, but, you know, in Buffalo, the bankruptcy bar is small. It's very small, even smaller than New York City. And if you do something that's unprofessional or not courteous or treat someone poorly, in one case, you better believe that you're going to see that person on the other side again, and it's going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. Or you may not see that person on the other side, because that person may be the person who's going to refer you to your next piece of work, and you're not going to get it. So it's, I think, I don't know if it's pers- pervasive problem, but maybe, you know, at least up here in Buffalo, you know, we might weed out those people who are unprofessional just by the fact that we won't work with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a young attorney, I think that's a, one of the things you need to be very, very cognizant of. And I, I think as a young attorney, you might get a second chance, but it's something you need to learn very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, on a related note, um, the chapter on ethics, um, a, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart, having served as reporter on the ABI Ethics Task Force. What are the key lessons that you imparted in this chapter? Well, I think that the uh, the key lessons that we imparted in the ethics chapter, I think, go hand in hand with professionalism. Mm-hmm. We, we, we speak at length. Um, on the idea of confidentiality and, the, and uh, rec- both recognizing what privilege material is as well as what privilege information is and um, how to not either inadvertently or uh, intentionally disclose such information because it is such a significant violation of both your ethical duties as a lawyer as well as, your, as, well as the trust of your client, which uh, we spoke earlier about being the most important thing that you can have with a client. Mm-hmm. Other obvious professional ethical standards, uh, honesty, we call it candor to the tribunal, but honesty in front of the court. If you lose the trust of the court, you either might as well move or find a new practice. There's only a few bankruptcy judges in every district. Delaware and New York, maybe Chicago and L.A. being the anomalies where there's you know, nine or ten judges. In the Western District of New York, there's three judges. Two of them sit in Buffalo, one sit in Rochester. Uh, if you lie to the court or misrepresent things to the court, you lose the trust of that judge, and most likely Judge Buckeye is going to talk to Judge Kaplan, and you're going to lose the trust of Judge Kaplan as well. So imparting the idea of always, always, always be honest to the court. And honesty to the court, obviously, is first, you know, obviously is important, but then... Uh, moving on to the idea of conflicts. You, you, as a bankruptcy attorney, you need to disclose conflicts to the court. You also, as an attorney, uh, need to disclose any conflicts you have to your clients. 
and not disclosing a conflict, uh, not disclosing a small conflict at, at the beginning of a case and it being discovered at the end is going to hurt your career much more than disclosing a large than uh, disclosing a large conflict and uh, discussing it with your client and the court at the beginning of the case. The conflicts aren't a problem necessarily. They just have to be disclosed and handled appropriately and according to the professional rules. I think it also focuses in on the fact that while you have a duty to zealously represent your client, that doesn't mean you have a duty to engage in no-holds-bar litigation um, or representations. So, again, having a duty of candor to the court is one example of where your duties, other duties, overcome your duty of uh, zealously representing your client. And in addition, just in the general practice, you probably should realize that you should not let the desire to zealously represent your client blind you to other, the other aspects of practicing law. For example, you shouldn't necessarily file a paper on the day before Thanksgiving as a strategic move, being courteous and granting extensions and allowing parties to respond is part of professionalism and is part of your ethical duty as a, an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, how did um, Judge Trust get involved in this project? Um, and what did he describe that you wish you knew when you started practice? Well, we had... As Craig said earlier, we had taken over the project midway through, and in the original outline, the previous authors had had suggestions from a bankruptcy judge. And we contacted Judge Trust because Judge Trust writes for the ABI Journal. Um, His columns had great advice, Mm -hmm. and we thought he'd be a natural fit. Now, the advice that I recall from reading his piece that I wish I had known was don't throw the kitchen sink at the court. (laughs) Um, While it's tempting to throw every possible argument that you have out there, it can drown out the effect, and maybe you should pick and choose your stronger arguments and let the weaker ones or the extremely weak ones go just to be a more effective and clear writer and better advocate to the court. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, Judge Trust section is really a guide to how to start to learn uh, your legal writing, uh, how, to, how to build the building blocks of, uh, of real legal writing. As you, get, as you advance in your career, and Kevin and I have certainly not gotten to this point yet, you can start to you know, use your flowery language, take chances in your writing. But Judge Trust lessons, at least the, the ones after the most important lesson, which we talked about before, he starts off with honesty, uh, but then he goes into several sections on, on writing and presenting to the court, and they're the most important lessons that you can learn as a young associate. Say what you mean. Say it quickly. Tell the judge why it's important, and then tell the judge why you want. So, you know, brevity brief and uh, meaningful writing 
is going to get you much further as an, as a young associate than any you know elegance that you might want to try to include in your writing. Mm-hmm. So finally, you have uh, a chapter on making a career, and you've uh, spoken about how business development is key to making partner um, in many firms. What other things um, can a young lawyer do to make a career in bankruptcy? I think a deep understanding of uh, both the bankruptcy code as well as the state law concepts that are underlying the code and how those state law concepts interact with the code is the most important thing a young lawyer can learn coming into a bankruptcy career. For the first four or five years where where both Kevin and I are right now, uh, I don't think there's anything more important than having a deep, deep understanding of how the code works, how procedure works, uh, and how that interacts with state laws and the remedies that you want to uh, advance for your clients. Beyond that, which I think seems a little self-evident, learning procedure uh, is one of the best things that you can uh, is one of the best things that you can do as a lawyer. Uh, Having a deep understanding of not only the federal rules uh, of procedure, but also the local rules uh, promulgated by the various courts, by the various courts, and how those rules differ. There's there's nothing that'll irk a judge more than if there's a very clear local rule that you simply disregard in asking for your relief. Essentially, both of those add up to become a very good advocate for your client. Uh, That'll advance your career as a young lawyer more than any business development that you're going to be able to do as a young lawyer. And once you are a proven advocate for your client, then you can start using the results of that advocacy in your business development. I think there are other things you can do as well whether it be, one, the obvious of clerking, but two, is getting involved in organizations such as the ABI or local bar associations and uh, similar committees, um, whether it be writing, participating in events, putting on presentations, writing a survival guide, those kind of things. It just presents an to A, develop your knowledge, B, get your name out there, uh, and C, it's one of those things that, again, you learn practice and you learn procedure and you learn substantive law. I also think it's important for attorneys to realize that firms aren't the only options out there. There are other things such as career clerks, the Office of the United States Trustee, Nonprofit organizations, things of those nature that you can get involved in and still be practicing bankruptcy, but not necessarily at a firm. Mm-hmm. So thank you, gentlemen. Um, the Survival Guide for the New Lawyer, What They Didn't Teach You in Law School. Kevin Baum and Craig Letterbein. Uh, the book is available at the ABI Bookstore. We thank our audience for listening. Um, this is Lois Lupica, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. Mm-hmm.